Think about the hardest thing that you've ever faced. Think about whether you received comfort despite that difficult situation. And if you did, what came next or what should have come next? It's easy to think that the point of being comforted is so that you feel better, so that life is easier. And that feeling better or life being easier is all that comfort is supposed to accomplish. And certainly, God and his kindness may cause you to feel better in the context of comfort. And life may be easier, but feeling a particular way is not really the main part or the most important part. And life being easier is not the main part or the most important part, at least for a follower of God. So why does God comfort you if you are trusting in him? For us today, if you're trusting in Jesus, for the Israelites then, if they were trusting in God. Let's say that you've experienced grief alongside sickness and death. Perhaps your own sickness, perhaps the death of someone you love. Why does God provide comfort in a situation like that? In part, so that you can move forward. Not to move on, not to forget, not to act as though it never happened because those circumstances change us and become a part of our lives. But God gives comfort so that, as we see in this passage, there is work to be done in the world on his behalf that he can still be glorified and that we can continue to follow him by his grace and for his glory. Perhaps even closer to the context of this specific passage, let's say that you've experienced God's discipline because of your sin. Why does God comfort the sinner after discipline has reached its goal? Because even though sin is evil and must be repented of, even though sin has terrible consequences, God still uses sinners to point other sinners to him. Not to wallow in the misery of that sin, not to keep going back to it, but to pick up and to start following him again. And there's a sense, I think, too, in that having gone through that sin and discipline and restoration, those after the point are potentially more motivated to follow after God the right way. Consider the example of Paul. Consider the example of David. Consider the example here of Israel. They've seen God's grace and forgiveness. They have a sense of how much God has done on their behalf. And that is in part something that motivates to want to follow after God more faithfully going forward. In reality, the only way that any of this is possible is because of Jesus, God's servant. We see in chapter 49 and also in chapter 50. We saw back in chapter 42. We'll see next week in chapters 52 and 53. Jesus, God's servant, succeeds where all other servants fail. Cyrus was a pagan king. Israel was an unfaithful servant to God. Jesus, the Messiah, is a perfect servant, does all the things right where everyone else failed, and he is the one who makes possible for us to follow God in the context of suffering, in the context of suffering, even when it's rightly deserved because of our sin, Jesus is the one who makes it possible to follow after God. He's the, the basis of God's comfort to us. Last week, we finished the larger section of Isaiah 40 to 48, and we saw this idea that God bends nations to his will so that all will know he's the true God. We see elements of that same idea in this passage so that all will know that he's the true God, but I think the main point of this passage is that God comforts his people to be a light to the nations. 
And just to sort of uh, point that out for you from a couple of verses before we get into it. Uh, Verse 13 that Jim read for us. The Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Chapter 51, verse 3. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Chapter 51, verse 12. I, even I, am He who comforts you. Verse 19. um, How shall I comfort you? And then chapter 52 and verse 9, Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So that's the idea of God comforting His people after their sorrow, after their discipline. But what about this idea of them being a light to the nations? Well, chapter 49, verse 6, With regard to Jesus as His servant, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And Jesus, as the representative and the leader of the people, is bringing them alongside to participate in that work. And then chapter uh, 49, verse 23. You will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Verse 26. All flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Chapter 52, verse 6 says, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness and announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Verse 12, the Lord God will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Um, uh, And then chapter 10 Uh, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And so God comforts His people to be a light to the nations. We start, first of all, in chapter 49, where we see that God births a servant to restore His people. In verses 1 through 13, we see the second of these servant songs in Isaiah describing the Messiah, who the New Testament makes clear is pointing to Jesus. God prepares his own servant when Israel failed. He names his servant as a sign to the nations in verse 1. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. We see this specifically in the names that are given to Jesus in Matthew and other places in the Gospels, uh, and just in the simple fact that God appoints him to be the Messiah. We see also in verse 2 this imagery of Jesus being prepared like a weapon ready for battle. He crafts his servant to be his weapon. Uh, Reminds me of what it says in Psalm 127. Let's read those verses for you quickly. Verses 3 through 5, it says, Behold, children are a gift to the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And I think Isaiah is picking up on that imagery from the Psalms to describe not just children generally, but specifically a child in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Also, if we go all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, Jesus is described as the one who sits on the white horse who has a sword coming forth from his mouth. With it, he will judge the nations. And so God has fitted Jesus to be the appointed one to be his servant, but that is not merely a, a passive or a gentle or a, a peaceful kind of thing, but also that he's prepared for battle to carry out God's work and judgment of ruling and reigning over the nations. Now, obviously, the first time he comes, he comes to bring salvation. 
by living a perfect life and dying on the cross. The second time he comes, he comes to bring God's kingdom, ruling and reigning and judging the nations. And we see glimpses of that in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4 are interesting, and there's a little bit of a question of whether uh, when it says, I have toiled in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Is that Jesus speaking on behalf of Israel? Is it Israel speaking? Or is it Jesus speaking of his own labor being seen as uh, in vain or in vanity? And uh, different people have different ideas about that. Verse 3, it says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. So there seems to be a, an idea of the servant the Messiah, alongside the servant Israel. So we see that in verse 3. But then the question is, who has toiled in vain? We look at the history of Israel, and they're not necessarily following after God faithfully for much of their time. And so, in what sense was their toil in vain? Now, perhaps they looked at them being in exile, and they said, us following God is in vain, that kind of idea. And that certainly was true at different points in their history. But I think it's probably better to see it as the response to the Messiah's work appears to have been in vain. What was the response of the people when Jesus came? They rejected him. They crucified him. And yet, like First Peter reminds us, the justice due is with the Lord. My reward is with God. Peter says Jesus entrusted his soul to a faithful creator. And so in the context of the rejection and the humiliation and even the crucifixion, Jesus entrusts his soul to God. God vindicates his work. And I think we see an anticipation of that in verse 4. So God prepares his own servant when Israel has failed. What does he appoint that servant to do to enlarge Israel's vision of their restoration? For the Israelites in exile, it would be easy for them to think what God is going to accomplish here is he's going to bring us back to the land and then things will kind of be back the way they were. But it doesn't stop there. God is going to restore his people through his servant, verse 5, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. That phrase at the end of verse 5 is interesting because it reminds me of what it says at Jesus' um, baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. I think there's parallels there as well. But when we come to verse 6, God is restoring Israel, not just so Israel will trust in God, but so all the world will see that they should trust in God. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Israel potentially thought, God, you're going to put us back in the land. And that was a good thing. And that is what God promised he would do. But God says, I'm going to send my servant to do perfectly where you failed to do what even Cyrus cannot do my servant that we talked about last week, I'm going to appoint my servant so that it's not just you going back to the land and now following me instead of following in idolatry. It's now all the nations are going to see that I'm God and all the nations are going to see proclaimed that I am the way, the one to trust in. And then in verse 7, we see this idea that even in that triumphant statement that all the nations will see that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth, that God is going to vindicate his servant despite rejection. To the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation. There's this irony right after he says, all nations will see and all nations will, salvation will come to all the nations. His own nation is going to reject him. 
There's a little bit of a preview of what we see in Isaiah 53 in a much fuller sense in verse 7 here. But God remains faithful. God shows him. And so God's plan does not fail. In fact, God's plan is accomplished by that very rejection that Jesus experiences. Some of the most fascinating verses, I feel like, in uh, the New Testament are found in Acts 2, where it says in Peter's sermon, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. God is giving signs that the nations might believe. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And so we have the hope that the miracles and the signs and the power that God's showing show that this is the one from God. And then the rejection of the people who wickedly crucify him. And then God's power triumphing as Christ is raised from the dead. And we see this as well here in Isaiah chapter 49. And then the last part of this little section of Isaiah 49, God helps his servant in the restoration of his people. When the time is right, God restores them in keeping with his promises. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. This reminds me of what it says as well in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so I think most, if not all of us in here, would, would say that we know God, or at least that we believe in God. But what Paul describes in Corinthians and what Isaiah describes as the day of salvation is more than just acknowledging that there's a God. It's recognizing that there's one true God. And it's recognizing that that one true God sent His only Son, Jesus, to deal with our sin when we couldn't deal with it, and that not just that we know those things, but there has to be an act of turning away from that sin and turning to God through Jesus as being the only way. And that there is a sense of urgency about this and a sense of responsibility about it because it talks about in Thessalonians that there's a day coming when God will judge those who do not obey the gospel. And we say, what do you mean obey the gospel? It's good news. You take it or leave it. It's like a present. Somebody hands you a present, you open it or you don't open it. It's not a big deal. But God basically says, and, and Paul makes this clear in Acts 17, there is a day now in which God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to God. And so if God commands it, us saying no is not just saying, I'm good, I don't need anything. It's us disobeying God which is further sin that goes against us in God's eyes. And so when he says something like, now is the day of salvation, now is the appointed time, it's not something where we say, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe when I'm older, maybe when I get it all figured out. There's certain basic things that we need to know, but we're not supposed to just sit on that knowledge and say, okay, eh, someday. There's a sense of urgency. And 
Sometimes people have tried to use scare tactics to tell people that, well, you need to trust Jesus because you don't know what could happen. You could get in a car wreck when you walk out the door. And that's certainly true. But here's, I think, probably the more terrifying thing. There may come a point in your life at which you have a sense of urgency that I really need to turn to God and trust in Him through Jesus. And you say, well, but I've got to figure out all these questions and I'm going to do that down the road. What if the thing that happens isn't a car accident that takes your life away from you? What if it's the further that you go through life, the more confirmed you are in unbelief and unwillingness to turn to God because you say, well, there'll be time down the road, or well, I haven't done it yet, so it hasn't been a big deal yet. What if you come to your final day and you live a long, full life, but on that final day you say, I don't really feel like I need to turn to God. And when you die, then you go into God's presence and you find all this is true. And you find He was the only way, the truth, and the life. And you find apart from Him, there is no life. That's perhaps even more terrifying than the person who walks out this door, gets into a car wreck, and suddenly dies. Because that's sudden and that's urgent. But here's someone who walks all through life and has opportunity after opportunity and keeps saying no, and the more they say no, the more confirmed they are in saying that no. So if you come to that moment and you have a sense that it is the day of salvation and the appointed time and you need to turn to God now, don't keep putting that off. Not only does God appoint a time and when the time is right, comes and restores His people, but as He restores them, He preserves their journey along. Feeds them along the roads, pastures them in the bare heights, no hunger or thirst, no scorching heat or sun, because He has compassion on them and leads them and guides them to springs of water, because He makes the mountains a road and the highways raised up. God who led his people through the wilderness the first time is going to lead them through the wilderness again and provide for them and care for them. And this, I think, anticipates what we see all the way at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation where it says there will be no hunger or thirst and God will comfort them and God will provide for them and God will be with them. His presence is very clearly seen. And then we see this idea that his people can rejoice in his comfort. Verse 13, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. All of creation is praising God because he's comforting and restoring his people. God chose Israel to be his servant, but their idolatry led to exile. And so he raises up this perfect servant to restore them to being a servant and to bring salvation not only to them, but to the whole earth. And this results in praise to God for His marvelous plan and wisdom. Um, I think of what it says in Ephesians 1 over and over to the praise of His glorious grace or what Paul says in Romans 11 that there's this incomprehensible glory of what God is unfolding in His purpose for the world. In chapter 50, or the end of chapter 49 into chapter 50, we see that God answers His people's doubts with His own character and promises. So it's one thing to say God raises up a servant to restore them, but there's these doubts and questions in their minds even so. How does God answer them? Here's who I am. Here's what I've promised you. 
Zion doubts, first of all, but God responds with parental care. What's the doubt? Verse 14, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And in those moments when we go through great difficulty, whether we deserve it or not, whether we feel like we deserve it or not, that's the question that comes to our minds. God's forgotten about me. God doesn't care. How does God answer it? Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though some do, I won't forget. Can I forget? I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now think about the imagery of that in connection with Jesus in the New Testament. Um, uh, there's a song that says, the, the wounds on his hands eternity will not erase. He's raised from the dead, and yet even in his glorified, resurrected body, Thomas can look at his hands and see the marks of his crucifixion on behalf of sinners. And so if God inscribed, God doesn't have hands, God is a spirit, but I think this anticipates what Jesus is going to do. It's like, I will not forget you because every time I look at myself, I remember you, right? So the mother won't forget her nursing child. I've written you on the palms of my hands. I won't forget you. Your walls will be restored, verses 17 and 18. Uh, there's this um, picture, I think, of what God is going to do with Nehemiah and others as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But then he has a further illustration of it being like um, verse 18, put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. It's like a woman putting on jewelry in connection with her wedding. The walls that were broken down and destroyed are restored to Jerusalem. This together is a sign of God's faithfulness. And then this idea of children being multiplied in verses 19 to 21. You will be too cramped for the inhabitants. The children of whom you were bereaved will say in your ears, this place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. And then verse 21, where did all these kids come from? Is the imagery that's, that's laid here. That they go from being few and exiled and and many killed in the process of all that taking place to God multiplying them as a sign of his blessing. So Israel says, you've forgotten me, you've forsaken me, and God says, a mother won't forget her child, you're written on the palms of my hands, I'm going to restore your walls, and I'm going to multiply your children. And so God has all of these reassurances to their doubt, to their questions. So Zion doubts, but God responds with parental care. And then God delivers Zion. God delivers Jerusalem and all the people attached with that city from the nations despite legitimate grounds for rejecting them. And this goes back to what I've said several times now. Israel and the people of Judah deserve the judgment that God brought on them because God said, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you follow idols, I will discipline you so that you turn away from them. They followed idols so God disciplined them so they would turn away from those idols. So they deserved going into exile. They deserved famine and all the things that came upon them. And yet, God delivers them anyway because he's faithful. God makes the nations restore the exiles. Verse 22, I will lift up my hands to the nations and they will bring your sons in their bosom and their daughters carried on their shoulders. God, this goes back to what we were looking at last week. God says to this pagan nation of Persia over which Cyrus reigns as king, hey, take my people Israel from where they are here and get them there. They can't walk, 
hold their hand. They can't get there, put them on your shoulders. You're going to get them from where they are to where I want them to be. God rescues his people from those who prey on them. In verses 24 and following, can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? God's answer is yes. You were their prey. You were at their, you were vulnerable to their attacks. But now, they're not going to be able to do that to you anymore. The captives of the mighty man will be taken away, verse 25. The prey of the tyrant will be rescued. I will contend. I will save. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. The ones who were the predators now become the prey, and the ones who were the prey are now restored to the land. Why? All flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God shows His power so that all will know that He alone saves. Even though God's people were separated from Him, chapter 50, verse 1, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? You were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. God uses this imagery of slavery and of divorce to describe what happened to the people of Israel. You broke the marriage relationship, the marriage covenant, so I sent you away. You were disobedient, and so I let you be sold into slavery. And yet, I did not forget about you, and I didn't give up on you. But now that you have been disciplined and purified and all these sorts of things, I'm taking you back. I'm redeeming you out of that slavery. We see a lot of this imagery in the New Testament as well. Even though no man could save them, God did. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. God, when the time is right, shows them no human being can deliver you. But I'm going to step in and I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to save you. I'm the reason that you're in exile and I'm the only reason you're coming out of exile. God delivers Zion from the nations despite legitimate grounds for rejecting them. Then God appoints his servant to listen and obey where Zion refused to listen and refused to obey. And so the first of the servant songs was Isaiah 42. We saw the second one at the beginning of chapter 49. We see the third one here in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. God's servant is going to speak God's truth because he's received it from God. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. We think of Jesus and his disciples. We don't think of Jesus as a disciple. And yet, if this passage refers to Jesus, and I think the New Testament makes it clear that it does, Jesus is God's disciple in the same way that the twelve were his disciples. And he models that for them. He hears God's word, and he speaks it for them. He hears what God says to do, and he obeys it. Israel heard God's word, and they said, we're not going to tell people we don't care. Israel heard what God wanted them to do, and they refused to do it. Jesus, the Messiah, hears God's word, speaks it to others. Here's what God says to do, does it. 
God's servant is going to minister even to those who mock and reject him. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Think of all the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. They rip out chunks of his beard. They beat him. They mock him. They spit on him. They say, oh, you're the ruler? Show yourself that you're strong. And Jesus endured this willingly. And yet, verse 7, the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. How could Jesus endure it? Why could Jesus endure it? Because like it said in one of the previous chapters, one of the previous sections, God was going to vindicate him. God was with him. He knew that his obedience was going to lead to his exaltation, that his death was going to lead to the resurrection, that his obedience was going to lead to his ascension and eternal reign forever with God. God is going to vindicate his servant. He who vindicates me is near, verse 8. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. There's a sense in which there's a lot of, I think Paul's thinking about this when he writes Romans 8, right? And when he writes other parts of Romans, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Why can nobody bring a charge against God's people? Because no one can bring a charge against Jesus. And even though they did, God showed that it was false. And Jesus lives eternally where those who crucified him and falsely accused him and all of the things that they thought they were following God but violating the law at the same time, they grew old and died and Jesus lives forever. Their purposes were frustrated, but God's plan endures forever. God's going to vindicate his servant and God will vindicate his servants. And so you say, well, I don't know if it's worth it to follow God. It was worth it for Jesus, and it can be worth it for you too. God is going to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In contrast, behold all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. The imagery is a little unclear, but it seems to be the contrast between pagan ritual and trusting in the one true God. Trust in God, you'll be vindicated, you'll find deliverance, God will not abandon you. Trust in idolatry, you will have the torment that results from rejecting God. And I think this anticipates what we see, for example, in Mark's Gospel, where it talks about the the worm that doesn't die and the fire that isn't quenched as a picture of God's wrath against sin for those who reject him. We come to the last little part here of this middle section in chapter 51. God's faithfulness guarantees his help. And so in the same way that Zion doubts, but God responds with parental care, and God delivers his people from the nations even though they deserve their exile, and God appoints his servant to listen and obey where they fail to listen and obey, now God's faithfulness is the thing that guarantees his help. Look at the beginning of chapter 51. God, who helped Abraham and Sarah, can and will help their descendants. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. If God kept his promise to make Abraham one man to be the father of many nations, God can help the many nations that came from Abraham. The God who gave the law will save because his word is eternal. Verse 4, a law will go forth from me and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky and then look to the earth beneath for the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. God kept his promises to Abraham. God can keep his promises to Abraham's descendants. God's law is eternal, which means that his promises are going to be fulfilled. God goes on and on and on and on, and mountains are worn away, and rivers dry up, and people grow old and die, and nations rise and fall, but God endures forever. So whose word are you going to listen to? A king, yourself, some other human being? God says it's like a cloth that a, a grub eats it, a, a something eats it away. It's like something that is broken and thrown away. But God, God endures forever. God's word is true. God keeps his promises. In case Israel is still doubting, what does God do? God reminds them of something else. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Not only did God multiply Abraham, so he'll help Abraham's descendants, and not only is God eternal, and so his word is true and his law is right, but remember God's strong power demonstrated when he delivered his people in the past. Awake in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed of the Lord to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Why did God deliver the Israelites from Egypt? In part, so we could keep reminding them about it. Rahab here is not Rahab, the one who comes to trust in God in the early history of Israel, but it's this idea of pride, the proud nation representative of Egypt, like we've seen several times in the book of Isaiah and also in the Psalms. God defeated Egypt, humbled Egypt, showed the gods of Egypt to be foolish and worthless, broke the power of Egypt, drowned their army and, and, and left their Pharaoh without anybody to follow after him to show that he was the true God. And God now reminds them of it to say, if I did this in the past, think I can do it again? And in fact, says, I will do it again. The ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting. And not just that, but not just will they come there and things will be back the way they were, but 
They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. What does it say in the end of Revelation? No more tears. No more sorrow. No more of all of those things that are characteristic of this life. And we haven't seen this yet. But the fact that God helped Abraham, speaks an eternal law, delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, we can be confident he's going to do it. And God's people were supposed to be confident that he could do it. But there's one more illustration in case those first three weren't enough. Verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who's made like grass, that you've forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor and his he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God who stirs up the seas and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Who are you going to trust in? People whose plans fail or God who said, let there be light and the heavens blazed with glorious light. Who said, let the waters be separated and the oceans were formed and the dry land appeared and the animals came to be and the trees and the birds and the fish and the, the lights were in the heavens and all of these things together. God made it all. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. We say, but I'm afraid of this guy over here because he said this thing and what's going to happen? God says, but I'm the creator of the universe. So God helped Abraham. He'll help his descendants. God gives his eternal law, eternal law and he's kept his word all the way. God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. God's the creator of the universe. So what response are his people supposed to have? Arise. Verse 17, rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and the destruction, the famine and the sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street like an antelope in a net full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God even though God was angry with them, even though they were alone. Look at the last few verses of chapter 51. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine, rather with God's wrath. Thus says the Lord your God, the Lord even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. Because God helps Abraham's descendants and because God keeps his word and because God delivers his people and because God is the creator, God says, you've drunk my anger long enough. I'm taking it away from you. I'm giving it to your enemies and you will not experience this again. I put you into exile, but now I'm bringing you home. I've put you in defeat, but now you're going to have victory because I'm your God and I'm faithful and I help you. Judah has had reason to doubt God's presence because the situation looked bleak. 
but she needed to be reminded of many things. God's faithfulness, the fact that it was rightly deserved, and yet the fact that God was faithfully restoring anyway. And all these things together lead to hope, and we see that in chapter 52. God calls the people of Israel, first of all, from captivity to beauty. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. They'll have strength and beauty as they awake to God's deliverance, and no longer will enemies walk freely among them. God then calls them, secondly, from exile to their homeland. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing, you'll be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. God exiled them, and God restored them, but not because of them, but for the sake of his name. And God is going to bring joy in their restoration. Verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Paul applies this to the gospel in Romans 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. So what is this ultimately pointing to? God's restoration not merely of the people of Israel to their land, and not that spiritual and physical things are necessarily at odds with each other or they can't both be true at the same time, but it's not just that they go back to the place, it's that their relationship with God is restored. And the same thing is true and possible for us as well. If someone speaks God's word to us because they've been sent, because someone has said this is the only way that they are going to come to God, how beautiful and how wonderful is the coming of that message that we hear it and we believe in it and now we can know God. The people of Israel were supposed to rejoice at the announcement of their restoration and we're supposed to rejoice at the announcement of the possibility of restoration to God through the gospel. But it's really interesting that just like Paul says, you weren't saved just to be saved, Isaiah says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. God saves us to be holy. So if the people of Israel went from their exile and went back to the land and went right back to the idolatry that characterized them before... It would have all been for nothing. But if they receive the comfort and the restoration of God so that they can be holy and a testimony of God having changed them and then be a light to the nations, that's why God comforts them. That's why God restores them. That's what God is doing in us in the church. In Ephesians 5 it says, God appoints for himself, for Jesus, a bride holy and spotless and without blame. 
But how does he accomplish that? Not because we're holy to begin with, but because he takes us as sinners, makes us holy, appoints us to go take the message to the people around us so that all the ends of the earth would know who he is so they might have the opportunity to be saved. God's been doing the exact same thing all along. And we have a picture of it here in Isaiah. We have a picture of it in Ephesians. We have a picture of it in all the things that he reveals all throughout Scripture. So if you've gone through difficulty and you've found comfort, the goal is not to say, okay, now I feel better. I'm going to go sit on the couch. Okay, I feel better. I'm probably not going to sin in that way again because I don't want to go through that again. It's so that you can say, I've been comforted so that I can declare the works of God to the people around me. And I've been comforted and restored and forgiven of my sin so that I won't go back to it, but not just so I won't go back to it, but so that I will call others away from it to God. So God comforts his people so that they can be a light to the nations. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for these great marvelous truths in your word. We pray that you'd help us to soberly reflect on them, not to quickly forget them, but to see what you're calling us to do. We pray this in Christ's name.